So before we begin this podcast as usual, we wanted to touch on an issue that's happened since we first recorded our discussion on all things digital assets. And that is the events that have happened in March around the collapse of three banks in America, but particularly those with a heavy focus and involvement in crypto assets and supporting tech firms, and that is Silvergate and the collapse of SVB in America and the purchase of SVB UK by HSBC. And they say a week is a long time in politics. I think when it comes to banking, a week is certainly a long time. Given the relevance to digital assets, both in terms of the exposure those firms had to these banks, the deposits they were holding with them, but also the deposits that many stable coins were holding with these banks. What does it mean for crypto? Is it proof that we need non-fiat opportunities in order to have stable international currencies? Or does it reinforce everybody who was ever skeptical about crypto and tell them exactly what they thought was a problem is going to be a problem? David, a couple of small questions for you, but what's what's your initial take? And I, we have to say it's very early on since this happened. So, you know, we'll have to all watch what plays out. But your initial kind of thoughts. Indeed, initial thoughts. And obviously, these will get overtaken by events that go with faults. But, but certainly in our digital asset side, it's been quite an interesting exposure uh, to the crisis that's happened, particularly the Silicon Valley Bank. As you say, lots of the tech sector is banked by the Silicon Valley Bank already as well. And that's across the US and the UK. And actually, different geographies will be looking at this quite differently. So in the US, given the exposure to a lot of the crypto asset firms and deposits being with the bank itself, um, it causes quite a different problem to that of the UK, where actually the the exposure that Silicon Valley Bank UK had to these types of firms is much, much more limited. So the sale to HSBC has a much more limited effect. That being said, there are the broader questions around the policy horizon. So in particular, as you mentioned, one particular stablecoin had a fairly significant number in the billions deposit with Silicon Valley Bank US. And obviously there's a ring fence that exists between the US entity and the UK, not the ring fencing regime, but a, a, a kind of specific ring fence. What that means in practice is actually the considerations are very different. There's a big fluctuation there. That stablecoin lost its peg, for example. But actually, this brings into question a broader debate about whether, you know, with this is a traditional banking crisis or actually whether crypto has caused the crisis in the first place. And that's quite an interesting public policy question. In the US, it seems to be much more geared towards crypto as having caused the crisis in Europe and the UK. It's much more secondary effects. So the policy responses will be very different. I completely agree with you there. And I think one additional area that I've been thinking about is what this means in terms of the debate, which we're going to explore in the podcast later around client assets and the importance of how client assets are held and protected. And I think it certainly reopens some of the conversations around whether protections are currently sufficient in place there, but also potentially around where digital assets firms can hold their reserves. And obviously there's a strong cohort in the sector who have long felt they should have the same access to central bank deposit and reserves holding structures as more traditional fiat, traditional lenders and traditional banks. And I'm sure there'll be those that think this is an opportunity to, to actually double down on that conversation and look again about if this is going to be a vital part of the financial services infrastructure, then it needs to have the same infrastructure and protections and access to that infrastructure as more traditional firms. And I do wonder if this starts to, to open up that conversation. There will be many that want to shut that down very quickly, but certainly it's worth further reflection and further consideration. I also think there's an opportunity to think again about what this means for central banks' own capacity and bandwidth to look at 
digital currencies and CBDCs. You know, we haven't yet seen the scale of where this current fragility in the market is going to rest. We've obviously seen quite a major impact in the European banking market and banking sector. This is going to dominate much of the regulatory agenda. We'll see reviews and new initiatives. Um, in what was already a stretched bandwidth in the US, the UK and the EU, given world events over recent years, adding this to the list is definitely going to see other things being deprioritized. And I wonder if digital assets ends up being a consequence of that. But we should probably let you get over to the main podcast now and catch up on our introduction and discussion around all things digital assets. We hope you enjoy the episode and I'm sure there's been more we have to say on these issues over the coming weeks. Following what seemed like a short but sharp crypto winter, where we saw some notable market fluctuations, and of course the collapse of a significant firm, FTX, we are now starting to see some significant green shoots with the relative price of some assets on the rise again. We're also seeing significant conversations and developments on the regulation of crypto assets across jurisdictions. Separately, we're seeing more and more detail come from mature economies on their approaches to central bank digital currencies and how they view stable coins. I'm joined by colleagues with broad expertise in crypto assets and digital currencies from a number of different jurisdictions who will talk about what we're seeing with a particular deep dive on the US, UK and EU. I'm joined by Rebecca Park, Senior Practice Director here at Global Council, David Song, an Associate Director, and Konstantin Arvanitis, a Senior Associate. So, Becca, could we start with you? What political drivers are you seeing, not just in the UK, but in other jurisdictions as well, that are driving choices around the relative weight different countries are giving in the debates over CBDCs, stablecoins, and crypto assets? When thinking about the political environment and the political conversation around digital assets and crypto, and I'm terribly sorry, I'm going to apologize now. I'm going to use both phrases interchangeably throughout today's session, much like the UK finance ministry decided to use tokens interchangeably with crypto last week in their consultation, which I still haven't quite got over yet. I'll go with it for now. Firstly, when politicians think about this, they don't think about it. And actually, no one wakes up in the political policymaking environment, or very few people wake up very occasionally thinking about crypto or thinking about digital assets, or frankly, thinking about the future of money and those big philosophical questions. So when crypto tends to come to the fore, and when we start to see policy interventions in this space, it tends to be because something's gone wrong, or because people perceive that something's gone wrong, or they have a fear about future problems. So I've been carrying out a small test when I talked to policymakers over the last year or so. And you tend to get three answers when you ask them a question, what do you think about crypto? Answer number one is, it's not something I really know about, but like the good student that I am, I'm going to go and learn more about it and ask the questions. Answer number two is, I am aware of the value it can bring, but I have some real grave concerns. And those concerns usually focus around perceptions on fraud, money laundering, economic crime and illicit finance, or even for the more kind of considered in the financial services space, prudential and stability risk. Or the final option is, I have very clear views and I don't see the value or point in it and I have absolute concerns about the risk it poses to our system. I very rarely find an MP that hasn't already nailed their colours to this one with a considered view that is positive or helpful or inquisitive in a manner that is, I could see there are some use cases here. So I think that is the real challenge for the policymaking environment when it comes to the political intervention rather than the regulatory intervention. Interventions tend to be drawn by the fact that something's gone wrong there are concerns or perceptions about something's gone wrong, but ultimately it's driven by consumer behavior and consumer activity. No one really cared about this when we thought it was just a group of gamers or crypto bros dabbling in it. 
The concern came when data started to show that between 25 and 35% of our population has either held these assets in some form or is holding them. But also it's when the postbag and the casework postbag comes forward and MPs are reading and hearing cases about people that have lost money to scams. Now, those scams could have been any form of banking and financial scam, but very often they're crypto related or they read about the ransomware payments or in the UK now and in the US and Europe, it's driven by the crypto winter and what they've read in the business press about the collapse of FTX. And again, it's a very negative perception coming forward for the sector. That doesn't mean that I don't think there's a route through to actually change how politicians think about it. But I think you have to look at the interventions we're seeing in the debate and the changes and the reforms that we're seeing, that when it comes to politics and when it comes to politicians, that's what they know about, that's what they're reading about, and that's what they're thinking about when they participate in these conversations. And that's a really challenging question for the sector, which is before you can get into the detail to talk about what good regulation looks like, you need to explain what the value of the service is first. And you really need to articulate what the real economy value proposition is, because only if you get that building block right, can you get a positive mindset from policymakers that builds on top of the right regulatory regime. So the conversation becomes one of how do we enable this technology in a safe manner rather than how do we prevent people getting hurt from it, which is where I feel the debate's been today. That's really interesting, Becca. Thank you. And Constantine, what are we seeing here from the European Union? Where do you think the EU would like to see this landscape evolve? Well, Chris, the EU is very well positioned when it comes to the regulation of crypto assets. Because in the last couple of years, it has been negotiating a piece of legislation, one of the first of its kind, that will establish um, rules to regulate crypto asset issuers, uh, crypto asset service providers, as well as certain uh, types of crypto assets, including uh, utility tokens, stable coins, uh, and uh, other kinds of crypto assets that do not constitute financial instruments. Now, the collapses of well-known projects such as FTX, Terra Luna, Celsius, and Voyager in 2022 brought new attention to the vulnerabilities in crypto assets and related activities. But in the EU, it raised the question of whether new regulatory framework, the so-known markets in crypto assets regulation, would be able to prevent similar events from taking place in the EU. Although it's very hard to answer that question at this point in time, with Mika only looking to be fully applicable at the end of 2024, we can already see that there could be potential loopholes, especially because Mika might be future-proof, but crypto assets is a technology that is very fast evolving. And what about non-fungible tokens, which are currently not captured by the Mika framework? What about decentralized finance? What are the risks and opportunities for the EU? These are questions that the Commission will be looking to answer in the coming year. There is definitely appetite to regulate non-fungible tokens, the so-known NFTs, crypto asset lending and borrowing activities, which currently are not in scope of Mika, but also non-custodial wallet services, and of course, how to mitigate the adverse impacts on the climate of technologies used in the crypto market, especially in relation to consensus mechanisms. Thanks, Constantine. It's really interesting. And David, what developments are we seeing in the UK? In the UK, actually, the government and regulators such as the FCA and Bank of England, they've been preparing in the background about how to regulate these types of assets. There's been a lot of political discourse, particularly on 
how exactly you'd want to regulate these types of assets as well. So looking at the current government, they see a big competitive advantage potentially in creating a global crypto hub. Some of that nuance, some of that has been nuanced over the the previous announcements that you may have seen in the media recently. Obviously, last year, we were looking at the UK launching a global crypto hub. And politically, whilst that is still the ambition, obviously, we've seen some of the notable collapses that Constantine mentioned with FTX and some of the others. So that has nuanced the debate somewhat and moved it much more towards a kind of financial stability and customer protection mindset. So as you will have seen last week or may have seen, there have been two big announcements within the crypto space. The first is around regulating crypto assets, which looks and feels very much like the EU's approach, but takes a slightly different spin, which is much more kind of UK focused. And that is regulating the activity rather than necessarily the provider. Um, And that's done uh, through the virtue of something called the future regulatory framework that effectively gives greater powers to the regulators in the UK to push the type of approach that they want. And of course, these are independent regulators rather than necessarily directed by government. The second is uh, a consultation on a central bank digital currency, so a digital pound within the UK. Um, And that would be state issued, issued by the Bank of England and would gravitate itself to, to the pound, the value of the pound, and provide an anchor to the Bank of England issued currency in the UK. These are the two announcements, as I've seen, as I say, that we've seen, but previously we've seen some announcements, particularly on stable coins and their use as payments within the UK, which HMT potentially sees as a future potential mechanism for payments that we may start to see more and more as, as consumers move to the metaverse, for example, and as we see the advent and development of something called Web3 as well. So David mentioned the central bank digital currency announcement, the kind of British kind of Bitcoin, not Bitcoin. And that's what I think was really interesting about the announcement was there was this real attempt from the Bank of England and the UK Treasury in making that announcement to make a a UK uh, central bank digital currency sound like the most mundane thing ever. It was really downplayed. It was a how can we make this most sound like fiat currency and cash as possible? And in every interview, and in every press release, it was like, this is really just a way of continuing to pay for goods and services, just like the pound in your pocket. And I lost count the number of times I heard that phrase, just like the pound in your pocket. And I think it's really interesting that the authorities felt the need to make this sound very staid, very well regulated, very lots of prudential kind of elements around it. And I think a sense of Politicians understand that from the heady days of talking about the UK crypto hub, which was obviously a big Sunak push at the start of last year, and these big set piece and moments, which actually ended up being announced by the then city minister, John Glenn, because Sunak was somewhat embroiled in other political developments. They've had to measure that with, yes, we still want the UK to be a fintech and digital asset centre, and we want retail consumers to have those benefits, but it's going to be done in an incredibly well-regulated calm and careful manner and even the most innovative developments like a cbdc will will feel really just like an alternative form of currency now there are a lot of philosophical debates behind that which we can get into on another day which is is the cbdc that innovative or is it really just another form of payment rails and what are its values and use cases but it was very interesting that so much of the messaging was about downplaying the innovative nature of it in many ways and making it sound just just like another form of digital payments just like sending a faster payment from your mobile phone or paying for goods and services online and i think that was a really deliberate strategy that kind of calls back to the political risks that david you've been talking about and how do policymakers bridge that that gap between a conversation with the public and the very detailed technical work that's been going on around the different regulatory regimes? 
Thanks both. It's really interesting. And just broadening the scope a little, David, what are we seeing in this space internationally? Is there any convergence between jurisdictions or are we seeing sort of divergence and jurisdictions heading in different directions? That, that's a really interesting question. When you look across the, the variants of approaches that we're seeing from particularly the EU, UK and US, UK and EU seem to be in a slightly different direction, but actually heading in substantively the same way in terms of regulating these types of assets. Culturally, obviously, we're very much aligned with the EU, despite the political backdrop that we've had over the last few years. On the US side, there has been obviously a lot of questions around a state-issued CBDC. It's not the look and feel that the US usually goes for. It's not very much within their culture. And therefore, there's some substantive questions, particularly from the Senate, House of Representatives, etc., that look into, actually, do we want a state-issued uh, central bank digital currency? On the other side, so particularly with the UK and EU, they're doing both at the same time at a very similar speed as well. So we've seen Mika created in the EU. We've now seen announcement of the UK regulatory approach. And all of that filters up to the supranational level. So what a lot of people don't know is that there are bodies that actually talk about this on a day-to-day -day basis at global level. These are bodies like the Financial Stability Board, CPMI, IOSCO, don't ask me what that stands for. And they all talk about different types of crypto assets, the risks they pose to the global economy, and try to create harmonized rules that sit across those. And that can range from the stable coins that, that potentially we will see in future to central bank digital currencies, which the G7 in particular has done a lot of work on. And they have all tried to align the approaches across these different jurisdictions. The UK and EU have got a little bit further ahead of that, which means they can help shape these rules. And that's certainly what we're seeing. But where it comes to the US, they look to a lot of these global standards and have certainly supported those in the past in terms of the way forward to, to regulate these types of assets. Picking up on that, to what extent, David and Constantine, do you think we are seeing a race between different jurisdictions in this space? So are we seeing... EU, UK, US, multi-institutions having a race to regulate this first. Personal view from me on this would be it's a mixture of all of those. There was some degree of, I'd say, panic, to be honest with you, a few years ago when Facebook announced its attempt into the stablecoin space, which was the Libra DM initiative, which you might have seen reported about but don't understand much about. And that was their attempt really to embed a currency into its social media platform. It tried to do that in a consortia type of approach, but that really panicked the regulators because actually that, that took it to a global level that really meant that it was very difficult to regulate those types of providers. There was nothing that could be reused at that time to regulate something like Libra DM. And therefore, this is what caused all of the work that has come as a result of that. So looking at central bank digital currency, for example, nobody really talked about that four or five years ago. It's something very new on the horizon. And secondly, regulating stable coins that pushed the multilateral institutions. So particularly the likes of the Financial Stability Board and CPMI IOSCO to start to work on this. And that was the central banks working together, not necessarily the finance ministries and the kind of political sphere within different jurisdictions. Um, as a result of that, I think there is a degree of, oh, yeah, we needed to work together before, but actually going forward, we actually want to conquer some of this market. We want to make this a competitive advantage for jurisdictions. And that's definitely been the case within, within the UK where it's been pushed forward. It's been pushed up the political agenda. Again, as Becca says, nobody wakes up in the morning thinking about this, but actually when the mind starts to go, 
you've had your first coffee, you read the paper, for example, you look at what is happening within the market. And actually, you start to see there could be some competition in this space. And you start to look forward. And that's definitely what's happened in the UK. It's seen the EU, as it usually does, propose something. And then it takes a couple of years for things to get. But actually, it started to see that and started to panic because it looked at the EU, it was already market leading, it was always taking these rules forward. And therefore, what does the UK do to react to this? Constantine, from an EU perspective, what do you think the drivers are behind the EU's sort of apparent urgency to regulate in this space? Well, uh, Chris, the EU has clearly shown its ambition to establish itself as a global standard setter when it comes to regulating emerging technologies, not only with crypto assets, NFTs and centralized finance, but also, for instance, the metaverse, where we expect the Commission to put forward a proposal to regulate virtual worlds in May. At the same time, however, because of the global nature of crypto assets, the EU is committed to working with its international partners through the Financial Stability Board and other global standard setters, such as the G7 and the Basel Committee on Backing Supervision, for the development of consistent global rules for crypto asset markets, including an energy efficiency label for blockchains. So it sounds like on the one hand, we have the UK sort of racing to catch up a little bit and the EU very much pushing ahead and trying to stake a leadership role on this in global regulation. But Becca, it would be really interesting to get a sense of where the US sits in this as well. So I think there was a time when the US was probably going to be ahead of the UK and almost the UK's catch-up race was actually strategically, also the UK finance ministry kept telling me at the time, was a sort of, we really want to understand where the Biden regime is going to take regulation and the UK will adopt a suitable approach for our global financial markets accordingly. The US approach has been tied up to some degree in politics, both interagency politics between its commodities regulator and securities regulator, a debate that just doesn't happen in the UK or the EU, but also tied up by party politics and the fact that we had elections last year. And I think with the new Congress in place and what looks like early bipartisan agreement on an approach to take in America on how to regulate digital assets and crypto assets, there are some positive signs that we might start to see progress in the US. So it's definitely a slower place approach. I think the US is really adopting a will use enforcement to deal with this issue approach rather than policy in the view that it will take time to get the right political and regulatory agency agreement to to drive forward a solution. And also certainly it gives them a chance to reflect on the EU approach and the UK approach to some degree to determine what might work and where there might be problems. But almost in the it's, the, it's almost a reverse question in the US. So I think, whereas I think the UK and the EU has absolutely been led by consumer harm first, in a way the US is looking at the structural element, like how do we address the role of exchanges and the way in which crypto exchanges are sharing information, trading and operating and where are the conflicts in the system? But also, where do we? what does that then mean for how we build the regulatory framework or to what extent can we apply the existing regulatory framework to these technologies? I don't think it's any coincidence that we're seeing bipartisan agreements agreement now. I think in many ways, the collapse of FTX happened almost for the sector, an ideal time in the US. It happened in the middle of the election cycle. It literally happened while the midterms were taking place. So it received slightly less scrutiny than it would have done in those early dates compared to the UK, where it happened at the worst possible moment, which is as the legislation to regulate this sector was being brought into the UK parliament. And we saw MPs debating this sector for the first time. But actually, the timing since then from a US perspective, is definitely not a coincidence. It's an obvious galvanizing moment to get agreement and to start to see progress. My US colleagues here at GC tell me 
it looks positive, but there's still a chance we won't see progress this year. But certainly they think this is the best chance we've had in a long time. So perhaps we will see America coming forward with measures and proposals. I doubt they'll go as far as Mika and what we've seen in the EU. And there's certainly been a lot of US pressure on the EU approach to this, but I do think we'll start to see that regime coming forwards. So a slightly different set of motivations to what we've seen in the UK and Europe, but certainly signs that we're going to get progress. Looking back, it looks like there's been quite a lot of activity in this space and quite a lot of questions that remain to be answered. So, Constantine, looking at the EU, what should we expect over the next 12 months? The MICA regulation is expected to enter into force in May 2023, with the new rules due to apply 12 to 18 months from its entry into force. Once MICA enters into force, much of the focus will then, of course, shift to secondary legislation uh, to be developed by the EU supervisory authorities, which will provide much clarity on the technical details of the regulation. So that takes us to the implementation of Mika. But David, if I could bring you in at this point, what do you think we're likely to see over the next year, two years, both in the UK and the EU in this space? Thanks, Chris. So in the EU, I'll start with the EU, we're looking at potential potential proposals actually up and coming, particularly on the metaverse. But the EU are also looking at decentralized finance, otherwise called DeFi, for example. Um, but actually, in the back of everybody's minds, um, there is the question of uh, the end of the commission mandate. So in the next 12 months, uh, we'll, we will see these proposals come forward. But actually, given the fact that we're looking at um, MEP elections, but also potentially, and that's to be determined, um, a slightly different uh, composition of the of the commission, um, that will mean effectively a lot of this work does get paused. Um, and then retaken up once the new commission mandate does begin. Um, so we will see a little pause in the EU. And as usual, these things will take a number of years to actually go through the legislative process. Um, on the UK side, obviously, we've seen those substantive publications by the government. A lot of this will then move into the introduction of secondary legislation, so statutory instruments, particularly for crypto assets and for stable coins. Uh, that we're expecting to come in the next six or so months. A lot of that then uh, becomes a little bit more electoral resistant, let's say, because a lot of that then moves down to the independent regulators to set these rules. So expect lots of consultations from the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA in particular, and then lots of ongoing work that will happen with industry in that intervening period. What that does mean, though, is obviously there's the big question of the potential UK elections as well and what that will mean. Thank you, David. And Becca, if I could just turn to you for a final question. What do you think are the key opportunities and risks for firms in this market at the moment? What should they be thinking about and what should they be prioritizing? I would go back to the start in many ways, which is we've now got to a point where actually we're seeing the regulatory interventions really bite. So in the EU, we're at the point of implementation. And in the UK, we're about to we'll get royal assent so that the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which implements these new reforms, will become law by Easter. Uh, well, that is what the city minister keeps telling us anyway. And then we'll get into the, frankly, the real nitty gritty, which is implementing all of these changes through statutory instrument and then ultimately regulation by the FCA. And for firms, that means there's two parts to this, that really getting into the detail to determine what that's going to mean for your business, what future changes might mean for your business, but also how you currently offer services in these jurisdictions. Will you still be able to offer them from outside? Will there be localization issues and concerns about cross-border access? But also, how are you going to operate on the day-to-day and meet those growing regulatory expectations and obligations? And for public policy teams within those firms, therefore, how are you going to shape the development of those regulations? What does good dialogue and engagement look like beyond just responding to the many consultations that are out at the moment? I think the second piece on that is then 
effective engagement only works if it's built on the basis of a strong understanding of the sector. And I think to the point at the beginning, there's a really important piece of work to be done to explain to policymakers, politicians, regulators, what these products can actually do. We have used a plethora of terms in this podcast alone, from tokens to cryptocurrencies to stable coins to NFTs to DeFi. Even within the industry, there is an absolute clarity about how you define those and where you demarcate between them. Within the policymaker space, there definitely isn't that clarity, but ultimately there isn't that understanding. What does this mean for the typical person going about their lives, trying to spend money on goods and services, interacting online? How do these things get used? What is the benefit to society? Where do they add value? And I think when we can start to explain that, whether it's the use of stable coins to enable seven day a week clearing of cross-border payments 24 hours a day, we have to find a way as an industry to articulate that. And I think that's the really important piece that has to underpin the very detailed technical engagement on the consultations and on the regulatory dialogue. We work in this space all the time and I spent much of last month trying to figure out a single definition for Web3 and what it really means. And if we as an industry can't find a single way to talk about ourselves, how are we meant to get policymakers who are thinking about a very long shopping list of issues to understand what we're really trying to do? Thank you, Becca. It certainly sounds like crypto is an issue that's very much here to stay and something that something that will continue to be on the minds of governments, politicians, regulators, and definitely should be on the minds of businesses going forward. As always, if you, your business, or your investment is exposed to these issues, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for Rebecca Park, David Song, and Constantine Arvanitis, and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thanks, Rebecca, David, and Constantine, and thanks to you for listening.